Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Can gold save your portfolio? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is George Milling Stanley, Chief Gold Strategist at State Street Global Advisors. Hi, George. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Maggie. Thanks for inviting me. Always a pleasure to be on Real Vision. <laughs> and it's great. It's great for us to have you on now because from the beginning of 2023, um, gold's been on everyone's mind. And we've had people ask about it all the time and wonder about timing, if they were in it, should they get out? If they weren't in it, can they get back in? So we're going to kind of dive in and break, break this down today. Um, and I just want to start sort of broadly with your sort of investment framework for gold right now. You know, we're sitting right off that 2048 level that it hit back in April, you know, got above 2000. A lot of people got excited. Um, we've drifted down below that and we're kind of in this range now. So what's your outlook for gold? Let's do a little shorter term, say over the next three months or so. What are you expecting? Okay, look, gold's been flirting with this $2,000 level for the best part of a decade now, Maggie. Um, we were very close there in 2011. We actually got through there in 2020, got through there again last year and again this year. Um, at some point, I think we are going to make that decisive breach, but clearly we haven't done so yet, which is why the price is trading a little under that, uh, that $2,000 level right now. But my expectation, I don't know whether it's going to be in the next three months, but in the next six to 18 months, I feel very confident we will make that decisive breakthrough the $2,000 level. It often takes any market, it takes a, can take quite a long time to persuade investors that now is no longer the appropriate time to be taking profits. $2,000 was the right level to be taking profits for 10 years, and that kind of mindset can become embedded with investors. Yeah. And it's going to take something interesting possibly a recession. I don't know what it's going to take. It's going to take something interesting to push us through there. You asked for a three-month forecast. I think there's a very, very good chance that we could, in fact, see prices consolidate above that $2,000 level within the next three months. But I'm not going to make that a solid forecast because, you know, it has taken us a long time already and it right. could still take us some time. Right. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. I just like to give a time frame instead of talking generally because, you know, it can be very different. I think that what's so frustrating to people who like the concept of gold is the fact that for 10 years it's disappointed. So how 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 do you get at it? Is it, is it just that it's been consolidating or is it just a situation where it's not going to work like it did in the past? I think that's what people who watch this sort of decade range start to think. 
Um, you know, I don't think gold has been disappointing, quite frankly. I, I would take issue with you on that. Um, if you think about it, in 2019, the gold price was up 18%. That's really pretty good, uh, pretty good performance. In 2020, with the advent of COVID early that year, gold price was up 25%. So it shouldn't really have been a surprise to people that in 2021, we got a little consolidation, the price dropped four and a half percent. And then last year, basically it went nowhere. It, it finished the year at almost exactly the same level as it had started the year. But just to take that 2022 uh, performance, gold went nowhere. The equity market in the US, the S&P 500 was down 16%. Mm. Global equities were down 18%. You, the ag US bonds um, were down about 11%. Global bonds down even more than that. Real estate down. Um, and let's not even get into the cryptocurrencies that succeeded in a two-week period in 2022 in losing $2 trillion off a $3 trillion market capitalization. Fair enough. So we can't look at just price. You have to look at relative performance. And you have to look exactly. at the role it's playing in your portfolio. Because sometimes it's capital preservation. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing that, that's worth mentioning, those those percentages, the 18% in 2019, 25% in 2020, the long-term annual average price appreciation for gold in the 50 years that I've been looking at it, so since 1971, has been around seven and three quarter percent. So we were way ahead of the game in 2019 and 2020. We're starting to get back into some a reversion to the mean, if you like. And I, I also think that the big headwind for gold last year was the extraordinary strength of the dollar against just about every other currency. Um, it was at 20-year highs against all the European currencies, for example. And I think that that was one of the problems for gold um, in 2022. That was what kept it from really, really soaring. Um, and I think that the dollar probably peaked in October of last year. We saw, uh, what, a 4.3% decline in the trade-weighted dollar in November of last year, the biggest monthly decline in a decade. Um, and we haven't really seen much positive from the dollar. It's gone up a few percent, down a few percent each month. But we haven't seen a strong continued gain in the dollar since then. And if um, that extraordinary dollar strength is over, if other currencies are going to revert to their means and therefore move up against the dollar, then I think gold will move up in line with those other currencies. And I, that's really the, the scenario that I'm looking for for the rest of this year. Mm. What impact does the Fed have? So we, we have a PCE out tomorrow. What about Fed rate policy? Is that something that you're watching in terms of gold's performance? And, and what, what impact will that likely have? You know, I, I watch obviously what the Fed does very, very closely, um, mostly because everybody else is watching them very closely. So I'd be a fool if I didn't. I have to keep a very close eye on what they do. Um, but it's interesting. I think that Fed policy last year, raising rates as much as they did, especially those three 75 basis points hikes in the fall, which was really Jerome Powell smacking the markets upside the head and saying, pay attention, I'm taking inflation seriously, you need to take inflation seriously as well. All of that, I think, um, I don't think that was what hurt gold. I think that contributed to the strength of the dollar. And as I said, it was the strength of the dollar that hurt gold. And I think that's really the difference. If you think about it, um, if we look at periods when the Fed has been in sustained tightening mode, and by sustained, I mean a couple of years at least, um, consecutive years, 
And we haven't had that yet. We've only been in sustained tightening mode for, I don't know, a year and a half, something like that. We're still not at that two-year point. But between December 2015 and December 2018, the Fed raised rates nine separate times. The gold price is supposed to go down in conventional wisdom. It didn't. It went up uh, 21 percent. And between June of 2006, uh, 2004 and July of 2006, that's a two-year period, the Fed raises rates 17 times. Gold doesn't go down. It was up 70 percent, 70 percent in that period. So I don't think gold has anything much to fear from rising interest rates. Frankly, I'd turn it on its head and say that if I were the equity market, I would be running scared about what the Fed is doing and what the Fed has said it's going to continue to do. I don't think gold needs to worry about rates. That's so interesting because you will see people mention, oh, uh, you know, if you're in a higher rate environment, you don't get any yields on gold. So you're going to lose out because people could just stick their money somewhere else or they could be in a, mm-hmm. a, a short-term fund. You don't think that calculation or that argument holds water? Um, I think it holds water for the pe- people who believe it because those are the people who won't buy gold in a rising interest rate environment. But I think they're the ones that typically tend to lose out. I don't know that I could explain why gold tends to do well in a rising interest rate environment, except to say that when we're in a rising interest rate environment and Jerome Powell is saying, I'm going to raise rates higher than anybody thinks I will, I'm going to keep them higher for longer than anybody believes I will, um, that I think suggests that that there's a level of uncertainty, there's a level of anxiety for investors uh, in what the Fed is saying. And uh, I think that that is, generally speaking, very helpful for gold. I remember back in the early 1990s when Alan Greenspan was the Fed chair, and he was raising rates for a couple of years. It seemed like every time there was a Fed meeting, there was a 25 basis point increase. And yet hedge funds were buying gold as much as they could possibly get. I was a trader at the time. I was selling gold to hedge funds. And I remember asking one of the managers of these hedge funds, look, every time the Fed raises rates, it raises the opportunity cost of owning gold. It raises the attractiveness of of yield-bearing assets. And why are you loading up on gold? And the response was, look, if the dollar needs this much protection, with with Greenspan raising rates as he is to keep the dollar at a high level, then it must be in even worse shape than as apparent on the surface. So that's why I'm buying gold as a protection against potential weakness in the dollar. And I think that's a very logical thing to be doing. Interesting. So when when we're looking at, uh, you know, we've got this, so you mentioned the higher rate environment, not necessarily bad for gold. What about a pivot if the Fed pivots? Because the market is, I mean, there's been a lot of conversation about this. We're going to be watching that Fed meeting so closely next week. Um, no one thinks then, but if you're looking toward the end of the year, people do ex- still expect the Fed at some point to start cutting rates. Does that hurt gold? What does that mean for gold? Because now- uh, I don't. I, I don't think it hurts gold at all. I think that if rates were to come down, that would be beneficial. Um, but, you know, the the thing is, when we started this year, the big question uh, for Jerome Powell, whose name begins with P, there were three questions. They all began with P as well. Is the Fed going to persist in raising rates? Is the Fed going to pause? And the betting at the beginning of this year was pause in Q2. We're almost out of Q2 now. Um, Or is the Fed going to pivot at some point? And I think the betting in January of this year was that the Fed would pivot by Mm -hmm. Q3. 
So what's the reality? The Fed has persisted in raising rates and has indicated that it will do at least one more increase. The market is starting to fear that perhaps there'll be um, a second increase coming up and maybe even more. Jerome Powell has made it very clear um, that he will not pause until he feels the economy is on track um, to decline, that, uh, that unemployment is on track to go up, and that inflation is on track to get down to his long-term target of 2%. And he has said um, repeatedly, there is no justification for a pivot. There's no justification for us to cut rates. As far as we can see, in 2023, it may come in 2024. But that comment that he's made every meeting, I'm going to keep rates high. I'm going to raise rates higher than anybody believes. Mm. And I'm going to keep rates higher for longer than anybody believes. I'm listening to what he has to say. I think he's a man of his word. He believes that, that this is the right thing to do. And I'm inclined to believe him. There's an awful lot of people who don't have real practical experience of inflation. I remember inflation in the 1970s when I was still a reporter in London, uh, getting an increase, wage increase of 10% a year and thinking this is wonderful, not realizing that with inflation at 25% a year for three consecutive years, I was losing 15% in purchasing power every year in spite of those wage hikes. And it's when something causes you pain is when it teaches you the lesson. I don't think there's a lot of people out there these days in the markets who've ever actually experienced the pain that prolonged, sustained high inflation can bring. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We've talked about that. I mean, we've been in this low interest rate environment for so long and disinflationary environment that uh, there are a lot of people who haven't experienced it, both in the markets and, and in the real economy. Um, and, you know, it's been it's been extremely painful. Are you in the camp that we are in an environment where structurally higher inflation is here to stay? Or do you think we will see those inflation numbers start to come down? I think that Jerome Powell will eventually be successful. Um, but I'm inclined to adopt his kind of phraseology and say that it may take a hell of a lot longer than a lot of people really realize. I think that that's, uh, you know, that's the issue. Um, there's a lot of discussion at Fed level as to whether inflationary expectations have become embedded or they, they keep talking about the fear that they will become embedded. But if you look at what we have, I mean, inflationary expectations becoming embedded simply means that because everybody's expecting higher inflation, that workers ask for wage increases and employers raise prices in order to meet those wage increases. And because prices are going up, 
workers ask for wage increases, and that's the spiral that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the most recent CPI numbers, and I think the PCI numbers are showing the same kind of thing, I think that we have already got embedded inflationary expectations. I think that, that very, very dangerous spiral is actually with us already. Um, and it's going to take an awful lot to shake that out of the system. Just remember the last time the United States had significant inflation, it took Paul Falker in 1980 to push the Fed funds rate up to 19.5%. I mean, we're still at barely 5% right now. We still have potentially a long ways to go. I know that that was a 20-year period of inflation that poor Paul Falker had to try to deal with when he came in as Fed chair in 1979. Um, but eventually he did deal with it at the cost of either one recession with a tiny little blip of recovery in between, um, or was it two separate recessions? The history books are kind of mixed on that. But it hurt the economy very badly, mm -hmm. and that was what really tamed the wild beast of inflation, as everybody said at the time. Jerome Powell has a similar kind of job to do. He doesn't have 20 years of embedded inflationary expectations to deal with. He has maybe a year or so. But I think that he's going to do what he says. I think that he will work very hard to get his, his target rate down to that 2% level. Yeah. B by the way, for those of you who are not members, we have a robust debate going on the platform throughout the shows, including macro insiders that Raul and Julian do about that issue of inflation, um, with some expressing your view, George, and then others kind of leaning into demographics and technology, arguing it's a very different workforce labor market than it was in the 70s. And maybe mm -hmm. the, you know, the same analogies don't ap apply, but it is a vigorous debate. So I encourage you all to go check that out. Um, some really interesting conversations. Um, if you're not already a member, you can scan the QR code and figure out um, how to get access. I think we have some trials yeah. now. So we've got some We've got some questions coming in, George, and I want to get to a couple of them as, as we can, can continue to go through this. I'm going to start with Peter. Yesterday, I met with a precious metals dealer. He told me that 2023 sales are running double 2022 sales. Is that common? Is this common? Um, I don't know at this point because the only information I've got on progress so far in 2023 is essentially anecdotal. Mm -hmm. um, we'll be getting in, uh, uh, in very early um, May, we'll be getting uh, the first quarter supply demand figures from the World Gold Council. I think it's just coming next week, in fact, and that I think will be very helpful for, for most of us. I've seen Inflows into gold-backed exchange-traded funds, I think, have been running pretty strongly. That's always, a, a, to me, a useful indicator that there is that people are acting on this interest that they've been expressing in precious metals. They've been expressing the interest for some time. I think people are actually starting to take significant action now. Um, that's why the two gold-backed exchange-traded funds that uh, that State Street. Um, has an interest in GLD and GLDM are both up more than half a billion dollars year to date. Um, that would tend to square with what uh, with what Peter is is talking about. But I don't have uh, I don't have the statistics yet, so I'm not gonna you know I'm not gonna make a rush to judgment on any of that. So uh, another great question uh, from Trillionex: What do you think about gold as a hedge against stagflation? We get this question a lot. 
Mm-hmm. Um, stagflation is such an ugly word, isn't it? And as I recall it in the 1970s, it was a pretty ugly period for the economy and, and for those of us who, who, were, who were working at the time. Um, let's just take inflation. Whenever inflation has been sustained um, at a high level, and I'll define those terms first, okay? But this is, again, looking over the last 50 years, that, that the experience that I've got. Whenever inflation has been sustained, i.e. for more than two consecutive years, at a high level, I would put that at 5% or above. Um, whenever that has happened, then the annual average price appreciation for gold, instead of being at 7 and three quarter percent like I mentioned over the whole of the last 50 years, within those inflationary periods, it has doubled. It has been around the 15% level. Um, so whether if we have inflation, then gold generally tends to do very, very well. Uh, If we have a stagnant economy or even an economy that is actually in recession, which I think is a very real likelihood at this point, um, then I think gold will do even better. When we've had recessions in this country, again, there have been seven significant size recessions in the 50 years I've been looking at gold. Annual average price appreciation over those seven recessions has been better than 20%. And that's in periods when equities have been in negative territory because we're in recession and when bonds haven't been helping out much either, um, neither of any of the other assets. So uh, gold always has responded in the past, has always responded very well to recession, to stagflation, to, to inflation. Um, even just to periods of slower growth, gold has tended to outperform other assets um, and that, uh, that, to my mind, is one of the reasons why you want to own it when you're in troubled times. Mm. We sometimes hear people talking about a choice now between gold and crypto if they're looking at a he- for a hedge. What are your thoughts on that? Is, is, is that the competition right now? I don't think so, no. Um, you know, uh, look, there's a, there's a couple of things to say. One is that about seven years ago, I think it is now, I wrote a paper, I was working for State Street, and I wrote a paper, which essentially, um, it posed the question, think think Bitcoin, because Bitcoin was the only one around at the time. Mm-hmm. Think Bitcoin is gold 2.0, think again. And it basically made the point uh, that at that time, the uh, volatility in Bitcoin and the other cryptos that were coming into the market was really excessive, was much, much higher than the volatility in gold. And that situation has only gotten worse in the intervening seven years or so. Um, and since, since Bitcoin was launched in 2009, then its annualized volatility has been running uh, at around 10 times the volatility that gold has shown. And then we have this, this awful experience of last year, when, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, um, you know, the, the crypto universe as a whole dropped two thirds of its, its market capitalization in a very, very short period of time. That prompted a lot of people to say, uh, cryptos are just another risk asset. Um, it prompted me to say, I don't see this as a strategic long-term investment, which is the way that I tend to see gold. And it prompted Warren Buffett to suggest that cryptocurrencies were the equivalent of rat poison squared. I wouldn't go quite that far, but the Oracle of Omaha definitely has a point in my view. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. 
pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah. I uh, I had a feeling you were going to say that, George, but um but but worth worth discussing. I uh, so we have a uh, let's see. Um let's see. These are all such good questions. So uh let's take this one. I want to I want to get into a little bit about how we've got some allocation issues. I want to get to those in a second, but I want to try to cap get to some of the more macro questions first. Uh SBD758, in a liquidity crunch, gold crashes like everything else, always has. Is George expecting a severe liquidity crunch? Why or why not? First of all, do you agree with that? And then do you see that coming? Um, that's not been my experience in that 50 years. It may be if somebody is looking even further back in history than I'm prepared to go, um, that may be the case. But I always think that the, that the past 50 years, or since the period since 1971, is to me a very appropriate period to look at. Um, couple of things, couple of reasons. One, it's when I first got involved, and so I've actually been there and involved in gold for the whole of that time. So I've been able to watch this up close and personal. Um, secondly, 1971 is when uh, President Nixon basically created the free market in gold by ending the automatic right of foreign central bankers to bring their dollar-denominated assets to what was at literally a window at the Federal Reserve and say, here's your dollars, can I please have some of that nice gold you store in Fort Knox? And this was being done by foreign central banks in the 1960s and 70s to such an extent that the U.S. gold reserve fell by half. And Nixon was the one who decided to put a stop to that. So we've had a free market since then. Um, what happened before that in liquidity crunches, I don't really know. I don't know that we're in a liquidity crunch. This is the second piece of the question. Mm. Um, there's no question that liquidity is not as freely available now um, for two reasons. One, because the Fed is raising rates, so it's more expensive to borrow money, but also because the banking crisis has reduced the, the readiness of many banks to actually lend money, made them a lot more careful in doing due diligence on the people they're lending it to and so forth. Um, but, you know, we've had a decade where money was basically free. And I think that um, I don't think that this is a liquidity crunch. I think this is a return to a much more realistic kind of situation that persisted before that. But if the questioner has only been involved in markets over the last 10 years, then the questioner is, has become very accustomed to the fact that money is free and always will be. That has been the belief in a lot of people's minds. And I'm afraid um, that was never, never sensible. I don't know that it was sensible to keep interest rates as low as we did, but I can understand the thinking behind it. Um, yeah. Jerome Powell has actually expressed regret that he didn't start raising rates sooner, and I would go along with him in that. I think he should have started a few months uh, sooner than that. But I think he's going to make up for lost time by keeping rates higher for longer um, than anybody really expects. Uh, Bo is asking, how much of a piece of the pie should go to gold investments from a portfolio allocation perspective? Very hard, I will say, as we always say, and we talk about this often, we, of course, don't know the individual risk profile. We don't know your situation. So asking for portfolio allocation is tough. But I don't know if there's a general thought, and I'll add to that maybe for somebody who 
does not have a super high tolerance for risk, but also is not only interested in asset allocation. Let's sort of call it down the middle for sort of a balanced portfolio. Is there mm -hmm. an allocation recommendation that you make? Um, yeah, but it's a fairly broad one because there is no such thing, as you said, there's no such thing as an average investor. That animal doesn't exist. Um, the literature basically says that any portfolio can benefit from a long-term strategic allocation to gold of between 2 and 10%. And where you fit on that spectrum uh, depends on your tolerance for risk and your liquidity needs. Um, at the age of 75, my tolerance for risk and liquidity needs are probably rather different from yours because I believe you're quite a good deal younger than I am. And I think that that is going to change. Um, in, is that is going to mean the difference between your investment horizon and mine, for example. Um, so, you know, somewhere between 2 and 10%, I think, has always made sense. And where you fit depends on the specific investor. There is also uh, an addendum to this, which is, that if, um, and this is all from the, the basic gold literature, if you believe that you are living or you are about to live through times of exceptional turbulence in financial markets in general, then it can make sound financial, sound investment sense to double your allocation to gold. Mm. So now the question is somewhere between the 2 and 20% range. Um, and that I think is probably the right range that people should be thinking about. Um, yeah, but that's that, very that, helpful because at least it gives a, a little bit of a um, gives some numbers and at least a range for people to be able to go to their financial advisor or go online, use one of the calculators to sort of plug in mm -hmm. once they do know their risk um, and and know that what they're being told kind of falls within the range that people usually look at. So that that is helpful. Uh, Oliver, no, uh, let's see, where are we? Oliver asking... How how much can retail buyers of gold affect the price? Is it all controlled by central banks and institutions? Great question, Oliver. Yeah, um, I might even know Oliver, actually. I know one or two Olivers who would definitely <laughs> ask a question like that, but I'm not going to ask you to tell me his last name. Um, look, I think that uh, there are many, many different things a whole host of things that drive the gold price. And they're never all working at the same time. Mm. Um, there are times when retail investors can have a very, very significant impact on the price, um, especially if uh, during those times, other investors, you know, institutions may have pulled back a little bit, maybe central banks have pulled back a little. So yes, they can. They will not always have an influence on the price, but yes, they can. And the more they come in and buy, the more of an influence they're going to have. Um, I think, you know, the, the larger institutions typically are moving larger amounts of money. But if retail investors really do get the bit between their teeth, and we've seen this in many, many periods of, of the last 50 years, if they really get the bit between the teeth, then they can have a significant impact on prices, irrespective of what's happening with, uh, with other investing institutions, central bankers, and so on. So interesting. Paul asking, do you recommend investors own bullion as well as GLD? Um, I think it all depends on why you want to be involved in gold in the first place. Um, a lot of people believe that there are significant barriers, perceived barriers to investing in gold bullion, not least the fairly high premiums that most dealers will actually charge to a retail investor. And potentially when the investor comes to take profits or accept losses, um, discounts when they come to sell back. That's something that doesn't exist with, uh, with gold ETFs, for example. Gold ETFs were designed essentially 
to take the friction out of gold investing for those people who perceived it to be um, something that was burdened with a lot of friction. Uh, we took, you know, we, we, we took the friction out of it. I think we um, democratized gold investing, if you like, um, 18 years ago and $60 billion into GLD later. Uh, I think it's proven to be a real success. Um, but, you know, I, I always try to say there is no bad way to gain exposure to movements in the gold price, that depending on the reasons why you're doing it, um, then the methods can vary. So, um, you know, a lot of investors have voted for gold ETFs, and I think that that is a, a very useful thing to do. But I'm not going to tell anybody that they're they're doing the wrong thing if they buy a handful of gold coins. Yeah, anytime, anytime we talk about, uh, you know, the actual physical commodity, it's always an issue of storage and security, right? And that is Absolutely. an individual preference. We talked about retail versus central bank. Um, and I, I would be remiss, there was a report on Bloomberg about Turkey central bank selling some of its gold reserves. Um, is, is there ever a worry that because of whether it's individual country issues or maybe even more importantly, global financial instability that central bankers become sellers of gold. Do, do you have to worry about that when you're thinking about the price or is there enough support elsewhere that that's not a concern? I would be concerned except for one thing, and that is that it doesn't tend to be events or developments, whether macroeconomic or geopolitical, that prompt central bankers to sell. Mm. We have in recent times, we've only seen one significant period of sustained net selling by central bankers, um, and that ran from 1989 through 2009, and this was essentially um, central bankers of the advanced economies in the Western world, um, mostly Western Europe, but including Canada, not including the US, including Canada and Australia, one or two other countries. Um, and they, as a legacy of the days of the gold standard, this particular group of central bankers, the advanced economies of Western Europe, North America, and wherever else there are advanced economies, on average had more than 70% of their reserves in gold if you mark everything to market, which is the only way to, to look at it. So they were trying to reduce um, their exposure to gold. They felt it was an overexposure to one asset. And mm. frankly, um, I would have been inclined to agree with them, especially with Canada, which I think the only asset that Canada actually owned in its official reserves was gold. Any currencies they had were borrowed. So at 100%, yeah, I think that's an overexposure to one asset, don't you? Um, but so they were net sellers for that period of 20 years from 1989 to 2009. But at the same time, there were a lot of central bankers in the emerging markets around the world, China, Russia, Turkey, and a whole raft of others um, who, because they didn't have these legacy gold holdings that came out from, from being part of the gold standard, mm. um, they didn't have, uh, they had typically more than two-thirds of their official reserves in dollar-denominated instruments and less than 5% in gold. So for the last 13 years, emerging market central banks have been very significant buyers, much bigger buyers than the selling that came out of Western Europe between 1989 and 2009. It's been accounting for between 10 and 15% of each year's total global gold demand, which is very significant support for the price. Mm -hmm. um, and it is set to continue. And then there was another element that came in here, 
It's set to continue because in spite of 13 years of buying, they still have less than 5% of their reserves in gold on average. Um, so that's going to continue. I, there's no question about that. And then last year, um, there was talk that perhaps the U.S. government was weaponizing the international financial system by tossing Russia uh, out of the SWIFT payment system. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, this wasn't just the Russian government. This was Russian corporations and even Russian individuals who were banned from the SWIFT system. And there were a number of other people who, um, perhaps with good reason, perhaps not, but, but uh, some of them with good reason, were afraid that the U.S. might... Um, that they might fall out of favor with the U.S. government. Um, you know, I could mention names like North Korea and China and uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia and so on. Um, a number of other countries that felt, you know, this really, um, this reduces the attraction for us of holding large quantities of our reserves in U.S. dollars. And it very definitely increases the attractiveness of holding more of our reserves in an asset that is universally acceptable and entirely anonymous like gold. So there's been a second, and that is why um, net central bank purchases last year were at an all-time record. Mm. I don't think we're going to match the all-time record this year, although we've started very strongly in Q1, uh, and I expect that that will probably continue. I hadn't heard about sales from Turkey, but I have uh, I have been away for the last week or so. Um, mm -hmm. It may be that something cropped up, but I would be rather surprised if it was a deliberate move to sell out of reserves because Turkey has been rebuilding its gold reserves for 13 years solidly, very consistently, year after year after year, buying significant quantities of gold for official reserves. I would be very surprised if it's that gold that they're selling. It may be that their reserves have fallen because they change the requirement for commercial banks to hold some of their reserves in gold at the central bank. That's usually, um, uh, uh, it's a very easy one to mistake for, for people who aren't quite as close to the uh, Yeah, that, that's a fantastic point, and we, and we don't know the details. Uh, we're, we're a tick over, but I just want to add, leave it on this last question because I think it's an important one since we've been talking all about the attributes and attractiveness. Ralph asking, when would you not recommend gold? What are the circumstances where you would want to take a look and either not add or possibly reduce? Is there, a, is there an environment where, where gold won't work? Um, I, I don't think there's an environment where gold won't work. There is an environment where I might want to pull back from any tactical positions I've taken on, believing, based on the seat of my pants, if you like, and 50 years of experience, believing that the gold price is likely on an upward trajectory. I play the market tactically from time to time. Whenever um, that belief goes away, then I will sell my tactical positions and put them back into growth stocks or whatever else it is that I'm, I'm looking at. But I've always maintained um, a long-term strategic allocation, um, typically of about 5% in my personal portfolio, um, because the promise of gold for investors has historically had the dual nature. One, over time, and this is the only way to measure the performance of any asset or any portfolio, over time, gold can help to increase your returns. And over time, gold can help to reduce the volatility of a properly balanced portfolio. So over time, gold can help to improve your risk-adjusted returns, which is the goal of any asset that anybody puts into a portfolio. Um, and it will always, I mean, it won't necessarily improve your returns every year. It didn't last year, although it did, did relative to all the other things in the portfolio. But 
um, that over time it's going to improve the returns and over time it's going to reduce the risk in the portfolio. That's why I keep a long-term strategic allocation and I will always have that. Um, there will be times, as I say, like the current moment when I put on a fairly sizable tactical position because I'm optimistic about the immediate future for gold. Um, and I put that on some years ago and it's still there as a tactical position because I put it on at about $1,400 gold. And here we are flirting with the $2,000 level. So I'm pretty confident that, that, uh, that that's going to do okay. Pretty, and that yeah, I won't sell that at a loss. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, fantastic questions, everyone. Thank you so much. I think it was really important to just take some time and really take a look at this because it comes up so much given all of the other cross currents we're seeing. And George, I have to tell you that there's nothing like having someone on who's had the experience of actually trading and following these markets through all of the historical periods that we're talking about. You really brought us an expert view. So we appreciate that. Maggie, a real pleasure talking with you. I look forward to next time. Thank you so absolutely, much. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, two things to note: uh, you all asked for it at the meetups we had. We had a lot. We had a lot of people asking about having a conversation about modern monetary uh, theory (MMT). Uh, we've got. Warren Mosler, the grandfather of it, uh, love him, hate him, have questions for him, bring them on Monday. I'm going to be talking to him live at 11 a.m. Feel free to email us the questions ahead if you have any. Should be a very interesting conversation. And we'll be back tomorrow for extended daily briefing with Vincent DeLuard. A lot of good stuff to talk to him about as well. So we'll see you all then. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.